So I had sent, so <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, but the, this thing had to be manufactured somewhere else. So I think the person I bought it from <laughs> off Etsy was the middleman and then had it shipped from, I am going to spoil it, a different country. And I think whoever generated the FedEx label in that country put the wrong address for you. And it oh, ended I up see. at the Haunted Mansion from that Amazon. When you said, I thought photo. that was a joke when you sent me that photo. picture. I was like, <laughs> I was, I thought that was something you found on Google when you typed in like scariest home entrances or something. No. And I was like, yeah, that's my place. <laughs> and when I got that notification, I was like, I swear that doesn't look like his, his, his place. And yeah, so <laughs> it had a bat knocker. I was gate. just going to say that. Did you see the bat? <laughs> Literally the yes. haunted mansion. That's why I was like, it's the haunted mansion. <laughs> I was looking, I walked over to that area. I couldn't find the area actually. Cause like, I was like mapping it and it must be like behind someone's building or something. I don't, I think it's a house. I think that's an actual house and that's somebody's gate. That was not in the front. I mean, I okay. walked like up and down the whole street. That's I was, so it was me at like 9am in like booty shorts outside. And I was like, <laughs> looking around. I was like, Seriously, I was in like my pajama shorts, which are effectively booty shorts, and I'm walking around and I'm just like looking for packages. Oh my I couldn't gosh. find it. I'm sorry. Well, it's gonna be. I'm gonna. I'm on the hunt to find. I literally already have oh the God. owner's name of that home, and I'm like, I gotta do a background check and get the get the phone number. From the picture, I was a little scared as I was walking out there. I was like, I don't know if I want to meet the person who lives at this place <laughs> if I find it. I know. The bat knocker. I cannot. But hopefully we can find it. Why did you send it. me something? You were so sweet for doing that. You don't have to send me anything. Because it's a super belated housewarming gift. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they're so sweet. Okay. Well, I'll, I'm I'm going to try. And I think you, just, gonna... you would just really think it's hilarious and great. So I need. <laughs> I, we've got to track it down. I'll find it. I promise. I'm going to go out actually later today and see if maybe they like kicked it out to the curb or something. <laughs> all I'll say. Also, wait, what did you want to tell me? Oh, wait. Oh, sorry. I was to say all I'll say is when they open it, they're going to be like, what in the world? <laughs> you think they would open it? I don't. I mean, it's it's I don't know. Maybe. Sometimes if there's mail that comes here for another person, I always put it aside. I always have the tendency. I'm like, I should open it and see like if it's anything important. But I'm like, no, I'll just tuck it away. And they never come to retrieve it. Well, sometimes so it people just, don't I even just have a pile of someone else's mail. Yeah, sometimes people don't even like read the address. They just open it willy nilly. So I know my dad's like that. Yeah, all the time stuff comes for me, and he'll call me and be like. I accidentally opened your mail and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And it's always nothing. It's always like your car registration is due or something. Like who is just so, so violently opening up letters left and right that they like don't even bother to read, especially when there are other people who live in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. Wait, so what did you want to tell me before we jumped on? Well, can I know on air? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing that we like <laughs> chatted a little bit before because I was going to come in so hot. I, don't know what I cut my foot on, but I sit crisscross sometimes while we record. So I'm getting ready to log mm. on and I look down and my hand feels like wet. And my foot is like covered. My hand is covered in blood. My foot is covered in blood. No. And I was like, just now? But like right before we got on. And I was like, so my uh 
my spidey senses are tingling. I'm like, <gasps> like I looked down. It was just like blood, like gushing. So I'm ready for whatever you have for me today. Oh my I'm god! Ready. Are you okay? Are you I'm, still? Blind? I'm totally fine. I bandaged it up in two seconds. The cut was like so so tiny, but when I looked down, I think it oh was yeah. Just sometimes like, you get those bleeders. Yeah, so funny. I actually, I wonder where it is. I have this scratch. Can you can you see that? I can't. <laughs> Maybe, um, I can't. I can't. <laughs> well, it's very tiny and it's very thin, but it's. <laughs> I have this scratch on my arm. I don't know where it came from. I got it in my sleep. I have had, listen, I don't want to like speak this into existence here, but I have had some rough nights, like sleepness, sleepless nights in this place. And this is an older building that was then like renovated like many times over. Sometimes I just have this feeling that like, there's something in here, like yeah. a presence. I don't know. So that's what I'm blaming the scratch on rather than something sensible like a zipper. But I'm like, I was scratched in my sleep spirit. by the devil himself. Yeah, that's spirit. full spirit. It's spirit. Um, <laughs> also, before we jump in, can we have a little tiny chat? Humorous, everybody, for a second on Kyle and Mauricio. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. R.I.P. <sighs> you can't let me go there because I won't stop. <laughs> I, I I can I'll rein us back in if we go too far, but I just first of all, can we just say Allison was right all along. He will never emotionally fulfill you. I, know that. I was just gonna say, know that. <laughs> I mean, where were you when the news broke? You were the first one who broke it to me because you sent me you I think you literally sent me the quote. I was in bed and you were like, please tell me you've heard. <laughs> Please tell me you've heard the news. <laughs> the queen is dead. The Literally, queen is dead. that's how I felt. I, I I can't take another Bravo scandal. Like the Vanderpump Rules one almost drained Took me of every <laughs> brain cell I had left. Like I can't. I can't. Well, I, I'm okay. I'm still a little bit murky. Tell me if you know more about this than I do, because I'm kind of murky on like who's actually breaking off what. Because everybody who I know in my like Bravo circle was saying Kyle is the one who's initiating the divorce because Kyle was the one who cheated. So there's always been these rumors, I guess that Mauricio was maybe fooling around, but it never yeah. got confirmed. Like they always kind of shut it down and diverted the storyline elsewhere. Like, I think she's always been really good about that um, because there I guess in the last, honestly, there's definitely one earlier season where it was like a big thing. And then a recent season where it kind of came back up, but they shut it down. And then with mm-hmm. this, I mean, you know, all the conspiracy theorists believe that she's in a relationship with a woman. Her with Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Well, I mean, this could be Kyle's revenge move. If any of the conspiracies around Mauricio cheating mm-hmm. were true, this this is Kyle's like. I don't know, retribution for 
whatever he allegedly did to her. I remember all of those conspiracies because it was Mauricio and Dorit had a thing, which I was fully willing to perpetuate because that's so hot. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, where was I? Living under a rock? You don't know about that? Are you for real? (laughs) No, I I have no idea what that is. No, that that is the rumor is that whoever the other woman that Mauricio cheated on Kyle with was Dorit. And that's where all of the internal animosity came from. Obviously, it was never confirmed, but really think about listen Dorit is looking for an out she's trying to jump ship from pk and has been since day one because Dorit is so hot and pk is a soft shell crab and mauricio is just there mauricio is just there pk pk no i love saying how she says jaggy oh jaggy how are you so good at that (laughs) kyle kyle it's Kyle, honey, you can't do that. That is so good. <laughs> last thing I'll I say. I love the idea. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I thought you were about to rain us in. And off. I was going to say, last thing I will say is, <laughs> and Creepers, if you watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, I encourage you to go on YouTube and find a video <laughs> of Dorit speaking at her fashion show 10 years ago. And she had a totally American accent. I listen. I appreciate the camp of the British I do accent. Too. Yeah, I, I, I don't they say that like it takes roughly ten years of being around somebody who has the accent or living in another place before you like develop the accent yourself. So I can understand if like she's been around PK for like ten plus years and she's like, oh my god, <laughs> it's just a little ridiculous. It, it's it's a little Madonna. It's a little Madonna. Um, but very Madonna, very insulated. Yeah. It, listen, if it works for Dorit, it works for Dorit. Something's working for Dorit, mm-hmm. and I think it's I think it's Mo. I think it's Mauricio. Oh. Kyle, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Creepers, I'm real sorry. If you're not a Housewives fan, I know this was probably insufferable, yeah. but if you are a Housewives fan, this was for you. We're so sorry. I don't so, we haven't talked about Bravo in, in a hot minute. So that'll be Creepers, that'll be the last of it for another. 20 episodes or whatever. <laughs> mm, I can't hold us to those kind of restrictions, but we'll see. Because <laughs> more of this could unfold. Imagine if more comes out. If the scandal actually does break, it was Mauricio and Dorit. Anyway, so I am going to pivot us into our actual case. I'm sure I'll put a timestamp somewhere to say like X amount of minutes in is when we actually start the podcast. <laughs> if you're listening, check the description. It should be there somewhere. Um Welcome back, I should say, to everybody uh, to Creep Time, the podcast with Silas Dean and Stu. Miss Stu, I have a bit. Do you even know what we're doing? Did I tell you? Oh, wait, I, I sent you like a list, didn't I? You but maybe did. You and I thought to myself, wait, go back and check the list before you start today. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to like guess from memory what it was when you sent it to me over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Is it Malaysia flight? Oh, yes, it is. <sighs> Oh, yes, it is. I chose this. So inadvertently, this was a suggestion from you because I you're not technically blind reacting to this one because you know this case. But I know this is a very freaky story for you. So I was like, I need to scour the Internet for every scrap of research. I have so much research. I'm actually nervous to get into all of this because it's a lot. But we are covering the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 that vanished. Are you already feeling spooked? I'm not breathing. (laughs) Well, what do you know about it from the jump? I mean, 
when did you first hear about it? What is your memory of like when it hit the news? Because we were both, I mean, it's 2014, so we were alert. I mean, I remember it was in, we were in college. I'm trying to think of where I kind of was when the news about it came out. But I remember being so freaked by it. I just like didn't understand Mm -hmm. how that could happen. And I remember like the, the, didn't they find like the black box and they found like maybe some shrapnel or they found nothing. I can't remember. No, they found, okay. So, oh God, I cannot wait to go to (laughs) the meat of this because uh, well, there is some like real, to answer your question, they did find pieces of things, um, but there is some very, very legit conspiracy around that, which is like almost etching itself out of conspiracy territory. And it's like, oh no, that was like, very obvious cover-up kind of stuff. A lot of pressure on the government to get this solved, to give answers here. Yeah. Oh, man. And I just remember some, I think if I'm remembering correctly, like some images of the families that maybe gathered. Yeah, those Uh, I remember. Yeah. um, Protested, actually, yeah. I mean, against the Malaysian government. There was a lot of, like, I will hear, maybe I should give a quick top line just for anybody who's not familiar with the story. Um. For those who don't know it too well, the quick snapshot of the story is that back in 2014, a commercial aircraft of Malaysian Airlines carrying 239 people on board, including 12 of the crew members, vanished from air traffic control's radar while flying over the South China Sea. So what we know is that the plane, although somehow, you know, it disappeared from the radar, it flew for several hours, actually many hours without detection which led some people to believe that this wasn't quite a malfunction or like internal disaster of the aircraft, but something very sinister happened here. That's kind of loosely what you remember too. Yeah. I can already tell the the wave of seriousness is washing over you. (laughs) I sat straight up. I like, I don't know what it is about (laughs) this sort of same kind of feeling with Bermuda triangle, but this kind of Mm -hmm. like a, a, something takes over and it's just totally out of your control sort of situation. And then to not have closure. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, the open-ended story was what really freaks me out. I also, so it's, it kind of sounds like you think it might've been like unexplained disaster, or do you think that maybe the pilot could have had something to do with like this, the disappearance? I mean, I, I definitely think that a lot of people lean towards the pilot potentially having Mm -hmm. some issues. Um, but, I don't know. I mean, I think for a long time, we didn't quite know much about him or we didn't know. Um, I, at least It was it, ambiguous. And yeah. At the beginning, the media was I like kind of running being, rampant. Yeah. I remember at the beginning, everybody kind of being like, what the hell could have happened? Um, so in my mind. Well, cause, yeah. Because you don't want to assume that a pilot did anything right. nefarious to an entire cabin of people. But that's right. also really scary to me. The idea that like the person in charge, you're like. I don't know, safekeeper could have a screw loose, could go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, especially on such a big plane. Huge. Oh my God. I'm surprised you know about that. Yeah. It's a massive plane. It's the second largest commercial aircraft. Yeah. I do remember that too. Um, not that it was the second largest commercial aircraft, but I remember it being a <laughs> I was very like, large Damn. Plane. I was like, you want to run this episode? <laughs> hey, I'm DB Cooper, remember? Um. <laughs> I don't, do you think people are going to like, Get get upset with us because we're like on an airplane theme now because we've just done DB Cooper and now we're doing the Malaysian Airlines flight. 
Listen, maybe we're just we're uh, looking to go on a vacation soon, and we're just that's that's what's going on here. I would like to. Yeah, I would we're like, like slowly to fly dropping hints. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I should get into the rest of this top line here, so I can give you some extra details that I think when I really get into the thick of this, I cannot wait to hear. Wait to hear what you're gonna say. <laughs> so let's see. We know that the plane went down. It was off radars, but we know that it was flying for hours after it disappeared. To this day, there have been these extensive search efforts to look for remains and passengers and any debris from the missing plane, but nothing has ever fully been found. And there are lots of theories that spell out that something very insidious could have happened on this flight. Um, We just don't really know which direction that could have gone in. Um, But before we jump into it, I just will say welcome back, everybody, just to give a second intro. Thank you for stopping by for a Friday episode to Creep Time. I'm Silas. Stu is here. We are so, so grateful that you guys stuck around so you could listen to an episode with us. We have new episodes every single week. So thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening. Quick order of business to help us grow just a bit quicker. We always like to ask if you have not, please pause this podcast right now just to make sure that you are subscribed or following the podcast wherever you listen could be spotify apple amazon or youtube and if you could leave us a review we appreciate those too because we i mean i don't know how often you read them but i'm in there every single day (laughs) because i appreciate the hot takes on the podcast whether they're good or bad so if you feel so inclined to leave us a review We really appreciate the positivity there. And if you want Creep Time to grow even bigger, I think I've said in the past, you can always share it with a friend, family member, or coworker, anybody that you absolutely want to scare the (laughs) out of. But you could also just post it to strangers on Reddit. You better mark (laughs) that That's a great avenue as well. That was 1732. (laughs) Thank God. What would I do without you? (laughs) 1732, the year I was born. All right. Now... Shall we jump in? Let's let's Feeling do it. <sighs> All right. You can feel like how bully my breath is because I know how much research I'm about to get into. So let's just talk a little bit about the flight itself. A few key details here just so we know what we're getting into. So I want to talk about our captains first. So we have Zahari Ahmad Shah. He is our lead captain of the flight. And there is the co-pilot who is Farik Abdul Hamid. And they are flying Flight 370 of Malaysia Airlines. It is a Boeing 777, which, like we said, it's a commercial aircraft that is one of the largest, in fact, the second largest that was available at the time, with 239 people on board. This includes passengers and crew. So here's what we know. We got the flight departing on the evening of March 8th, 2014. It is a red-eye flight, so it's going to be flying pretty late into the night, which I did not know, and adds a completely new layer of freaky to this to think that all of this went down in the dead of night in a black sky over the ocean. That's terrifying. That's, I I almost swore again, but I was like, that's messed up. I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Oh, this is, this is some insidious, insidious stuff that goes down on this. It's worst nightmare kind of stuff. It was, um, let's see, it was supposed to depart from, Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia was going to be headed towards Beijing Capital International Airport located in China. So from everything that was teed up from air traffic control, the flight was going to be relatively easy, which is also strange here. Like they had a clear night, very clear skies, low winds, turbulence was expected to be low to absolutely nothing. 
like nothing to indicate that rough weather or anything could have spelled disaster for this flight. So how do we actually explain what happened here? So we have this flight. It is direct. It's going to be roughly five hours and 45 minutes that they are going to be traveling from airport to airport. And something I didn't know, and you can tell me if you knew this, I had never really thought about how air traffic control works for international flights. So what happens is air traffic control shifts from country to country and sometimes like airport to country. So typically like it would go from like there's air traffic control at the airport to get you off the runway and then it transfers to like Malaysia national air traffic control. And then once you cross the border of like the air zone into like a different country, Vietnam was going to pick up the next air traffic control. It would never happen. So roughly an hour into that flight, when they were supposed to switch off from Malaysia to Vietnam, they switched off from Malaysia. They never switched on to Vietnam. That is the eerie part of the story because so much of it feels deliberate. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think at the time people believed or maybe some people still believe like you go over the ocean maybe and something went wrong mm-hmm. and it didn't pick up. But that is, I, I don't think I knew that part. I didn't remember well, that part. You, like I said, you want to believe that, you know, it could have been accidental. But when we get into how many different methods this plane, specifically this aircraft had, as far as like tracking capabilities and tracing, so much goes wrong and goes dark that it's very, very hard to believe that something, there wasn't interference, Mm -hmm. you know? So let's go back and actually piece together minute by minute what happens in the cabin of this plane in the very first hour before they vanish. So the Boeing 777, I should mention, like I said, it's not your average plane. This is one of the largest planes available. Um, And it was not new for Boeing. This had actually been the 400th production model of this plane that they had made. And this particular aircraft had made 7,000 successful trips prior to this incident. So that also kind of edges things out of the idea of mechanical failure or, you know what I mean? Because it's not a new plane, right? Yeah. And I feel like if that's a plane that's been manufactured for a long time, they kind of know the drill and it seems like it, it was. Absolutely. And because of its size, too, it had a lot of extensive safety features inside, like very sophisticated equipment to ensure not only safety, but traceability from control centers on land. And in fact, I was reading some of the stats around this, like with this particular incident in aircraft, you would have been more likely to be individually struck by lightning than you would be to have experienced a malfunction in this particular plane. That is how safe it is, which only makes all of this even more strange and deliberate. But I want to talk about the captain and the co-pilot first, just to give you some backstory on who they are, because I only really touched on their names. Did you know anything about them or just like what you picked up from the news over the years? I didn't. I remembered it was a male pilot, but I don't, I know nothing. Yes. Let's see. So we have our captain. He's the head pilot, Zahari Ahmad Shah. He's 56 at the time and was extremely experienced. Um, He had been promoted to captain in the early 90s, and he had extensive experience with flying this aircraft as well as this particular flight pattern to China. So it's not his first time around the block. He was well-versed in how this was going to go. He was known to absolutely love his work. He was liked by all of his co-pilots and the flight crews and just seemed to be like a very stand-up guy 
And there were reports I found just about his home life that, you know, he was very communal, very involved in his local community and neighborhood. He would often cook food for communal events. Um, He donated a lot of food to like homeless shelters nearby. Like he's a very normal and good person from everything I could piece together. Um, But before I jump into the co-pilot, I just want to touch on one detail here that does spell something strange. So the captain, although he has like a glowing report of his person from everybody who knew him, his family said that something was off with him in the months leading up to this disappearance. He had become much colder around them and kind of seemed very withdrawn, like something had really changed in him. And he wasn't really spending a lot of time with the family. He was actually spending most of his time in his basement where he had the homemade flight simulator, which actually was designed to mimic the exact cockpit of a Boeing 777. He would spend hours down there just like simulating flights and like playing around in that. And to quote his own daughter, which she said after the disappearance, she was talking about the time like leading up to it. It was like he was a different person. Mm. We don't know a ton of details about what could have caused this shift in him or how serious this was for him and what was going on inside his head, but it definitely spelled trouble for the marriage because just a day prior to the takeoff of Flight 370, his wife and kids actually separated and moved out of the house, which I know that sounds shocking right out the gate where you're like, that spells a very dark story. Like that's that's probably somebody who was already on a a decline and then hit a low Mm -hmm. and then we're in charge of flying a commercial aircraft. Yeah. To make it even stranger, actually. And this is unconfirmed as to whether or not it's related to the case and what went down on that flight. The flight simulator that he had at his home, once it was found and inspected, they looked at the logs and it was found that just hours before he went to the airport to fly MH370. He had deleted some of the data from the simulator at home. Mm. And it's not clear why he did that. Um, they don't believe that it had anything to do with the disappearance or his doing. It's just a strange detail that he chose to delete data just before a fatal flight. Little, It's unnerving. I mean, yeah. it's it's difficult to like ignore and not concede to the feeling like he might have had a bigger hand in some of this. Sure. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying not to um immediately kind of say, okay, that checks out for me because I know there's so much mm-hmm. more that you're going to uncover, but what struck me is that a major life event like a separation. I mean, I know that pilots have a very they have to adhere to their schedule, like it's a strict thing, mm-hmm. but I think that he chose to show up to work the next day is telling, um, you know, a lot of people like a divorce or something like that, or your kids leaving could be a day where you're like, I cannot go. But maybe for some people, it's also immerse yourself in your work. And like, that's how you get through, get through stuff. Um, that's, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but there, yeah, that's kind of true. I mean, think about that in terms of a surgeon too. Like you have to perform life-saving surgery sometimes when you've just had the worst day of your life. Yeah. You could be going through a divorce. Like, obviously, I'm sure there are precautions where, like, you can call out of a surgery and, like, it would have to be rescheduled or another doctor would have to pick it up if, like, something serious, serious was going on. But I guess people like that have days like that all the time that we don't even know about. Yeah. And just from what it sounds like he was kind of going through, 
he's probably a very like intense person. Like he's, you know, doing his work at home, like practicing after all these years of doing it, like so many times. I was trying to like understand that too. Why I couldn't, I mean, unless he truly just loves flying and it's just enjoyable for him. Which could be, but also like if he's not spending time with his family or whatever, and like that's his safe Mm -hmm. space to you know, wake up one day and know that your families, you've somehow let your family down and then you're separating and that's already happening. If you've got to go to work the next day and fly, you know, however many hundreds of people, if you're already in a headspace of being like, oh, like I've let down my family, you're probably like, I don't want to go like let down these other people that I've committed to, you know, flying. I know that's probably a little like of a deep cut, like I'm trying, but I'm really just trying to like, Mm -hmm imagine how he could have been if he's a little unstable at this point like what the Mm -hmm. the mode was there yeah i mean this also isn't the first time that we've seen a pilot or a captain of a plane like have a moment or they you know shift into a point where they're unstable but that's the whole reason for the Mm co-pilot you know it's the reason that you have a co-captain um i've actually seen videos i don't know if you've seen this story a while ago of I think he was a pilot who was flying a plane, but his co-pilot realized that he had been drinking. So he like, there are like certain strategies and like protocols you can do to kind of get somebody out of the cockpit and like locked. So he locked the captain out of the cockpit and radioed into air traffic control. And he was like, we have an emergent situation. The captain is inebriated. I'm taking over the flight. We're planning to land at the nearest, you know, runway strip. Can you help us navigate? So there are like provisions. It's just shocking to think that all of this went down even if we're assuming like the pilot was having his breakdown, the co-pilot was there mm-hmm. unless the co-pilot, something happened to him. That's the other conspiracy around this, that he was maybe knocked out mm-hmm. or subdued somehow. I should probably get into his backstory too, actually. Hold on. Sure. Now we've got co-pilot Farik. Um, he had a pretty detailed backstory as well. He is much younger than the captain. He's actually just 27 But he's very well accomplished in this field, and he had a passion for flying. And just two years prior to this, he was actually promoted to first officer, which was a sizable promotion given his age. And I think it's really a testament to his work ethic um, within Malaysian Airlines. This flight, this particular flight, and this is kind of devastating when you hear it, you know, in tandem with the story. This was set to be his final training session before he was going to be promoted to captain at 27. Wow. He was ambitious he was smart he had great prospects on the horizon and he was actually set to marry another employee of malaysian airlines his fiance who was also a pilot her name was nadira romley and she was a captain already at just 26 wow so impressive let me tell you flying is so i've i have just to give us a little bit of levity i have flown a plane very very briefly one time like a little like cessna (laughs) or cessna i forget what they're called that is hard that is so hard like i did it for two seconds and i like pressed a couple buttons and that's amazing to be like that accomplished of of a captain at 26 like wow i was just gonna say i was like are you allowed to say that because isn't is that against like could somebody like have their pilot's license be taken from them if like they give somebody a joyride? So that was alleged. <laughs> the look on your face. That was that, that was, was just alleged. A lie. That you was actually lied. a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that was a friend of mine. <laughs> I'm just. 
I'm, I was like, shoot. <laughs> well, I can always ask. Anyway, I can ask the person. <laughs> Anyways. It's okay. You didn't name anybody. Um, Let's see. But I mean, that's kind of tragic just to talk about the co-pilot as well. Like he just had so much that was ahead of him. Like he was, a, this was about to be his promotional flight and he was going to get married. So to, to think that, you know, he was lost to this tragedy, everyone who was lost to this tragedy just kind of hit me hard as I was going through the research. But that's kind of the backstory on those two pilots. Any thoughts about that just before I shift into what's actually going on on the flight in the first hour? Uh, I don't have any additional thoughts, but that I'm so glad you kind of gave the backstory because that was going to be my first thing. Like, I want to know how these two pilots were doing, right, you know, right before they flew the plane and kind of who they are. So I think they were both. Um, it's funny, actually, and I'll get into this a little bit later because it's detailed in the first hour of the flight, because, like I said, air traffic control has to transfer from Malaysia National to Vietnam. So the way that that it's I think it's called a handshake is like the appropriate um, like flight term for that. Um, But you have to basically say goodbye and good night to your current air traffic control. And then you say good morning to the next air traffic control. Mm -hmm. So the lead pilot and I think the co-pilot were both heard on radio just before that transition took place. And both sounded fine. Wow. Both sounded coherent. Both sounded level headed, relaxed. Everything felt normal. It just never happened they never like made the transition so something something bizarre went down so let's actually get back into what we know about the flight itself now the flight was set to depart after 11 p.m it's a red eye like i said um time of departure status the skies were cleared as were the pre-checks of the aircraft uh nothing was ever flagged in the plane because they do a check before it's going to fly obviously nothing was flagged as abnormal during the checks and the flight had adequate fuel to make the trip and was expected to touch down, yeah, touch down in China after 6 a.m. So passengers, once it was cleared at, after the checks at 11, started to board at 11.40 p.m. And this was the last time anyone would ever see these people. So the flight hit the runway and was cleared for departure just after 12.40. So it took a full hour, basically, to get everybody on board and get everybody situated for the flight to take off. Takes off at 12.40 into the night sky. And this is the last moment anyone's ever going to see that plane. Now, once it's in the sky, it's critical that we stress just how normal everything was with this flight. Like nothing was flagged. Everything was going fine. Within the first 10 minutes of the flight, they are instructed to make the first handoff. Okay, that's what it's called, a handoff. So this is when the airport control hands off the air traffic control to the national control radio, which can manage the flight in the air as it's climbing up to 35,000 feet until it's eventually going to be handed off to the next country. Very normal. So this took place at exactly 12.50 a.m. The control center said hello to the crew, including Captain Shaw, who, like I said, sounded perfectly fine. And they're instructed, okay, you're cleared to go up to 35,000 feet, which they did. And Shaw, our captain, leveled out the plane and it was stable at this height ready to be set in autopilot. At no point during the first 30 minutes was there any interruption with their communication. They were in constant contact with control and everything was settling in to be an easy and run-of-the-mill trip. Now, within that first hour, they had to make the other handoff. And this was going to go, once they crossed the border of airspace and they were going from Malaysia to Vietnam, they cross over to the Vietnam control, like I said, and they're supposed to wish them good morning. It's 
a very seamless thing. There's nothing really wrong here. At 1.19 a.m., this was when the captain got his instructions. Okay, you're good to switch over to Vietnam control. He sounded normal, and he agreed to do so. So they switched off from Malaysia and never switched over to Vietnam control. This is a process that, in theory, is supposed to take seconds. But then one minute goes by, and then two, and then the control center becomes concerned. Because Vietnam air traffic control was expecting them, and they attempted to make contact several times, but they realized that the aircraft wasn't even turned on to their frequency at the control center. They're on what's, um, this is what's called a black spot, basically. It's a gap in time where no one can find them on radar. So this was concerning, but it's not emergent just yet. There are certain periods and flights where communication has a lag and there could be a black spot. But again, everything seemed really prompt thus far. So nothing could lead anyone to believe like, oh, they're probably just experiencing a temporary communication delay or something. Um, But I just want to talk about how rare a circumstance like this could be. Now, this has to do with the transponder. And I'm going to get into some like airplane lingo and knowledge here, which was definitely a stretch for mama, but I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) So to spell out what a transponder is, it's a small black box within the plane to relay information about location, speed, etc. Right? Cars have this too. Um, Obviously, a plane black box is much more sophisticated. (laughs) Um, But it can be used to transfer that information to any station or air traffic control that needs it to ensure that you will not be lost. Wherever you're headed, they are going to find you and be ready for you. So if for whatever reason they lost contact with the transponder, that was critical. So here's where things get strange and how the control centers knew something was wrong. When the pilot was to transfer from Malaysia control over to Vietnam control, Malaysia control said goodnight and closed the communication and watched the plane on the radar for several minutes but noticed that was the second that it went off course. It veered 30 degrees to the right away from Malaysia, Vietnam, and China and towards an open territory of the ocean. There was no explanation as to why the pilot was suddenly going off the route as soon as it lost communication or closed out communication with Malaysia. And then just two minutes into the detour, the transponder was manually turned off by someone in the cockpit. I just gave myself chills. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, let me just talk about that real quick because this is unheard of. Transponders do not, do not get turned off unless there is an emergency that requires that. And even so, the protocol is that you must communicate this to the control center prior to doing so. There were no circumstances where the pilot can just do that. And the second that that transponder got turned off, as does air traffic control system um, in the cockpit, the plane is officially missing. It is no longer on any radar and panic ensues. Thoughts on that thus far? Oh my gosh. This is, it just sits so heavy for me. And I don't, I mean, I know why, but I think the idea that that what I really do need to look up what it is, like fear of like open maybe not open water but like open spaces being is it like being lost in the in like a vast space yeah like something like that really freaks me out and um i think that i think we've kind of ruled out that there's really no instance where somebody would 
go off course entirely and not be able to like get themselves back on or like have noticed it if mm-hmm. it was unintentional, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think people thought they didn't want to believe that it was intentional. They were like, well, if he's going off course, there has to be like a mechanical failure or maybe he's trying to like do a 180 to like get back to the airport if the if he's close enough to Malaysia. Um, but again, like in that initial look at the radar, it was like two minutes where they were like, why is he going 30 degrees to the right? Why is he going off the course that we set for him? And then the little blip just goes away, just disappears. But that was not the end of the story because we, I mean, we're able to trace back. Once I get into like how they were able to track down what the hell happened on this flight, it spells a story. There is a story here. Something went down on that plane and I can't even imagine what was going on in the cabin in the cockpit. But it's freaky. I mean, to think that somebody manually turned off a transponder and that's something that's only available to do so if you're in the cockpit, if you're a pilot, we're assuming, that's that's dark. Like something was going on there and it felt deliberate. Yeah, because I think also the other thing is it's not like a typical, if it was going to be like a heist or a hijacker or something, mm. normally there's a gain to, even if it's going to be, you know, something like a, suicide mission you want Mm -hmm. it to be for something some end result like someone would notice and Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't mean to be smiling through like you saying suicide mission but it's only because i have theories like (laughs) (laughs) you're like if it would be for a suicide mission and i'm over here grinning like an yeah (laughs) what time is it 40 (laughs) 41 10 yeah thank you <laughs> Creepers, that's for the censor button if that didn't get, make sense at the beginning. Yeah, yeah sorry. Hope, hopefully that's been communicated. Anytime we swear, we have to call it the time so it's easier for editing. Um Yeah, it's 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 a freaky setup for sure. And once I when we talk about motive and you're talking about like, well, if it was hijacked, like why would anybody hijack it? There's quite a few points of contention here. One specifically that has to do with the cargo that was on this plane. And two, it has to do with some of the people, the high-profile people that were on the plane. There's a lot of conspiracy around Mm, it, okay. which I'm going to get into, I promise. But I do want to keep going with this story because that is not the end of our knowledge of where the plane was headed. But I just want to say right off the bat, just speaking about the likelihood of this. So what we have so far is that the transponder has been manually turned off as well as the air traffic control system in the cockpit. So the likelihood, and it's not to say, I mean, it could have been that both malfunctioned, but the likelihood of losing both systems at the same time due to a malfunction is nearly impossible. There is virtually no way that this couldn't have been deliberate, you know, any which way you slice it. It's just a question of who was really behind it and why. But even in the event, let's say that these two systems are off in the plane and they're like, we can't trace this thing. There is another way to track a plane, which they utilize. I have to say doing this research made me feel very comfortable. Like if a plane ever had a malfunction where it got lost, I'm like, oh, they could definitely trace me because they can, there's a million things they can do to trace a plane. (laughs) It's crazy. It is pretty amazing. I'll also say, and then I'll let you continue, but I think it's pretty incredible when you think about airlines and like, why so much stuff goes wrong. Like when you're at the airport and your bags are missing and your whatever's are, it's because they have to dedicate so much of their resources and time to making sure you get from point A to point B safely. And they're going to put way more focus on that than they are with your 
carry-ons and your the flights arriving on time. It's always baffling to me that like yeah. sometimes it's hard to remember that like when you're getting frustrated at the airport. Yeah. But that's why that happens is because they have to make sure it's safe before any of the other stuff can follow after. Yeah, I, I've never I agree with you. I've never understood the idea when people are like pissed when their flight gets canceled for weather. I'm like, do you want to be up in the air in that? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's like final destination. Do you want to be flying vibes. through a hurricane? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, listen, if my flight gets canceled, it's going to be me and that airport bar for the next four hours. And then I'll probably go someplace. I'll go to a casino nearby or something. It's going to be me <laughs> but- with the hotel voucher and room service. Okay. <laughs> I like I understand I empathize it's frustrating for sure but baby you don't want to be up in Mm-mm. that that sky that's bad that is some oh god what was a not cockamamie I said a Nancy word before I got on that was uh it was like tomfoolery you said oh my kin. God, tip of my tongue no 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 I oh. said kin but it was before I even got on with you I was oh. talking to myself <laughs> I was like oh god, what was it Caddy point is something like that. It was like Tom Foolery shenanigans, something. <laughs> Anywho, <clears throat> so where we're at is that we've got those two systems that are off on this plane. But like I said, there is another way that can be that a plane can be tracked. So they decide to utilize this other method. This is known as the aircraft communications addressing and reporting system. This is a system which reports real-time information to the manufacturing company in this case. So it would be Boeing. Now, this is like a live system, and basically, it's more about communicating like real-time data on like engine performance to ensure that the aircraft is flying perfectly so that if there is a discrepancy, the manufacturing company and their live support can basically contact air traffic control and be like, we're flagging a malfunction. Um, But it can communicate other things like outside of how the engine is running. It's like, are there any issues like inside the cockpit or the cabin? What are the fuel levels? It's really helpful. And honestly, again, it makes me feel so safe. Mm-hmm. But this system, there's actually two of them. There's one that's located in the cockpit, and there is one that is located in the actual cabin with the passengers in the middle of the plane. Now, the cockpit system reports things like speed and control functionality, while the cabin system reports functionality of the body of the plane, like pressure levels. Now, these systems were observed as an emergency resort for any information as they'd lost complete contact with the plane. At 1.21 a.m., the data coming in from both of these systems reported that although, off course, the plane was flying at a normal speed, had normal fuel consumption, and the pressure levels in the cabin were normal. Sorry, got to clear my throat. And then... (laughs) Oh, wait, hold Pause. (laughs) I was going to say, baby, I see tears. I see tears in your eyes. (laughs) Take your time. (laughs) Not take your time. (laughs) Take your time, honey. Take your time, honey. (laughs) Well, then we've got, let's see. And then at 1.22 a.m., both systems, completely dark. Nefarious. In the cockpit and the cabin, both systems go dark at the same time. So what that tells me is that if this was hijacking either from a terrorist on board or it was the doing of one of the pilots it tells me that this did not sit only within the cockpit this extended to someone going out to the cabin and manually shutting something off Mm -hmm. that's crazy oh well that was going to be my question is if those automatically would go off because something else gets turned off or is that something that you'd have to switch off yourself the only other explanation outside of manually 
disrupting, destroying, or turning off the system is another widespread malfunction. But again, the likelihood of those two systems, because they're separate of each other, but relaying information to the same place, the likelihood of them both going out after the other two safeguard systems also went out. At the same time. Nearly impossible. Yeah. Same time. 1.22 a.m. But at this point, the flight is now completely lost and is flying blind into the night sky over the ocean. If this was a mechanical failure, how terrifying for a pilot. How absolutely horrifying that must have been. That, that See, that's, this, that's exactly, this is the crux of why this case is so intense for me is because mm-hmm. it is so terrifying to think that like that was the last, you know, however long they were, if it was a panic situation like that. Mm-hmm. That everybody on board at some point or another domino effect started to have to go through that terror. And it's just a, like oh, realize something was yes, wrong. Yes. And that's just such an awful way to die. I, it's just hor- horrific. It's awful. Well, they didn't die just then, is the thing. There's more data that we're able to get. Believe it or not, there is another method. <laughs> so this is crazy. So it wasn't reported immediately when the flight first went missing. But although all three systems lost contact with the flight, um, oh yeah, with the flight at 1.22 a.m., there was one radar that maintained tracking this flight after that time. It was the Malaysian military radar, which had eyes on the flight and watched its behavior. So what they saw happening after 1.22 a.m. is actually even more chilling. They saw... Oh my God, I'm going to choke up this podcast. <laughs> and as you're choking, there's think... a huge siren going by. It always happens at the same time. <laughs> it's, I'm timing it perfectly. Yeah. I'm trying my best. But what they saw, this is really freaky, what the military radar saw. And they didn't initially release this, and I'll talk about why they didn't. You'll probably agree with why they didn't, even though it was harmful. Um, the control center was watching this plane. And after it went off course by the 30 degrees, like I said, to the right towards the South China Sea, it then unexpectedly made a sharp, sharp turn left. And when we're talking about a left, like this was a full 180 degrees left. And it actually was heading back towards Malaysia. So this completely pivots the story because this would have been something one, the flight crew and the passengers absolutely would have felt and they would have been like, something's wrong. This is not normal. Because that's not an autopilot thing. Like to, t- to actually manually turn a plane 180 degrees, that's a lot. Um, but it was almost like they looked, like they were aware that they were trying to fake a right. And then once they knew that they pulled out the system for the last system or radar that could track them, they didn't account for the military system, they turned back left. So they were trying to intentionally misguide whoever was watching them into thinking they were headed towards the China Sea. They were on their way back to Malaysia in that direction. Eerily, though, even the military radar lost contact in tracking this plane after an eight-minute period. So at exactly uh, 1.30 a.m., the flight had gone dark from all radars. And we don't know what exactly happened after this at this point. Now, believe it or not, Miss Jew, there is a fourth way that you can track a plane, even when all of these systems go out. Space satellites can connect to a plane because a plane has satellites on it and it can ping 
But the information that's collected is very minimal. It's basically like, it's called like a check ping. Um, I think they they nickname it like, hey, <laughs> like when it goes back and forth, because it's just to say like, oh, object X is at object A location mm-hmm. at this time, right? So they're able to find the plane this way first. And with some quick math, they can actually determine, they're like, okay, what's the speed looking like? How fast is it going? Which is really helpful in this case, because they're like, if that plane is like, losing speed or gaining speed and it's like soaring we could maybe assume maybe there's a mechanical issue going on so that's what they initially expected they're like this is probably some sort of a mass system failure the plane is going down it's not what they find within a few seconds of looking through the satellite data the plane remained in the air at a steady speed for seven hours total before it went completely dark on all transmissions, finally. Seven hours in the air, this plane went. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's, it's torturous. If, if, you know, if it was something for either for him, if it was a non-nefarious mm-hmm. thing and he was trying to figure out what the heck was going on with the plane and how to get these people back somewhere terrifying um seven hours keeping first of all keeping people calm for (laughs) seven minutes on a plane would be a feat it would be a miracle Mm. but i i cannot imagine seven hours up in the air and it not i don't even want to say what i'm thinking because it's so dark but like i just don't see how a plane of 239 or 79, 39 mm-hmm. people yeah. could be uh, cool, calm, and collected for seven hours. I think that stuff went down on that plane that was probably just whew, so dark. You know what's crazy, too, is that one of the eeriest um, pieces of evidence in this is that at no point was there ever any cell data that connected at all from any passenger of trying to make a phone call or trying to send out a text. I'm not entirely clear on like the mechanical logistics of that. If like all of the communication systems going out from the plane also meant that phones weren't going to be able to connect to anything, but it flew for like quite a bit, you know, and at different points was close enough to certain cell towers that somebody may have had like a pending, a pending text that Mm. might've gone out that may have been like partially received of all 239, there was never a single communication that went out that was exclaiming they were in distress mm. or exclaiming that they needed help or a goodbye message. Just really, really freaky to me. And although this system, the satellite system, which was able to eventually determine that they were seven hours up in the air, it couldn't give a precise location. It told a story that the plane was not online, but of course was traveling for upwards of seven, close to eight hours. And this was over the course of eight pings that were received total by the satellite, which, like I said, was suggesting it was maintaining a normal speed and it was very consistent in the air. And then at exactly 9.15 a.m., this is the official timestamp when the plane officially goes dark and the connection to the satellite was broken and the assumption is that the plane went down into the ocean. Now, what's so devastating about this is that... It's really unfolding in the middle of the night. So this was a, this was, like I said, it was a red eye. So nobody really got news of this. Families and loved ones actually arrived early at the airport 
getting close to six because they were expecting that the plane was going to land. They were going to pick up their people. So what they were told, because the airport also didn't know anything, and they were also confused because it's very, very rare for a red eye to be late. I didn't know this, but red eyes are usually, they make up for lost time when there were other delays during the day. So it was surprising to them, but that's what they told the family. They're like, it's just delayed. This continued for almost two hours of scrambling and, you know, confusing communication between, you know, everyone at the airport, even employees. And they were like, where is this plane? By 8 a.m., the Malaysian government contacted the families and released a statement to the public on the emergent situation that was unfolding, and it hit worldwide news. So once the press statement is made that they've lost contact with the commercial airliner overnight, the race was on. Like, everybody needed to know, like, how are we going to recover everybody? Like, where are they even going? What happened? But specifically, like, at this point, we know the plane has lost communication, so it's down. The plane went down. The only hope now is to look for survivors. This was an immediate search effort that came through, and it was spearheaded by the Malaysian government, but would ultimately involve the help and efforts of 26 different countries looking for this plane and amassed $150 million worth of search efforts. It is, the, it is single-handedly the most expensive search effort that has ever, like worldwide, that has ever been deployed. They relied on satellite imagery looking for debris and any signs of a crash because there was roughly 4,000 square miles where the flight might have gone down, possibly even more at this point because this would also change. They just did not know where it could be. So they followed a couple of false leads and they continued their search. But meanwhile, on land, the investigation is probing into every single person who was on that flight because they're like, something really bad could have gone down. We have to figure out their backstories and explain what happened here and if any of the passengers or crew members could have had something to do with this. Like it could have been an instance of a terrorist attack from a passenger. It could have been anything. Now, the initial investigation found that two passengers um, on that plane, a man from Australia and one from Italy, had actually boarded the plane using fake passports. Both men were from Iran. So this led to a host of theories, assuming that they were the culprits um, behind an orchestrated attack that eventually took down the plane. But within 24 hours, this was completely ruled out by the government because it actually found that they were just two guys who had falsified passports because they were seeking asylum. They had no they like really dug into their backstories, no history or verifiable records of like violence or any insidious plans or hijacking plans. Nothing like that. They were just two guys from Iran who were trying to eventually get their way over to Germany. So they were going to go to China first, and Malaysia was the, the route that they took to get out of their country and seek asylum. Got it. So, I remember that. I, that yeah. just struck a chord. I remember that being kind of like the first thing that people reacted to. Mm-hmm. Well, because everyone's trying to like force, feed, force fit the puzzle pieces. Of course. Right? Everyone's trying to spell the story out before it's even, before we know all of the details. Um, But there was really nothing there. They simply like wrong place, wrong time, and just being on a plane that went down. But Malaysia was just the chosen country for their escape. Now, at this point, though, in the investigation, because they had put so much stock into investigating those two, and it led nowhere, the search has gone by for 48 hours. And all the countries involved are kind of spiraling out because they don't know where to look, and they're really tapping every resource they can. Now, the greatest mishap in this search, this will drive you crazy <laughs> is that Malaysia, the Malaysian government was really, really delayed to relay any of their findings on their radar. 
um, specifically, they did not disclose the sharp left. So we know that they were faking right and going towards the China Sea. So everybody was looking at the China Sea. They were following that blip. It was the last thing that we heard about. But the Malaysian government never mentioned that, no, they were faking right and then they turned left. So it's not even clear why they actually sent everybody in the wrong direction if they had the information that, no, they were headed back towards Malaysia. So it was a complete waste of time for the first 48 hours. Mm. Complete waste of time. And it dismantled all of the efforts. And to this day, it is considered to be one of the greatest mishandlings of the case, that the government was not forthright with this. Um, And at this point, they have to recalibrate the efforts to go west of Malaysia, where they think it most likely went down. But when I read that, I was I was furious. But the real reasoning behind it was because Malaysia had drastically uh, developed their radar system, their radar tech, and they were afraid that if they explained just how advanced and far their radar could reach out and disclose that to the world publicly, it would threaten neighboring countries. Mm, okay. So it was more of like a, yeah, it was more of like a, I don't even know if that's considered like diplomatic affairs, like a foreign affairs yeah. decision where they're like, this could jeopardize an entire country if we compromise like the secrecy of how advanced our radar is. But so they were just deliberating. They're like, I mean, like, we're not going to send people in the right location, but we also can't jeopardize the entire country if we tell them, like, no, we have radar that goes all the way out towards, like, these sections of the world. Sure. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you kind of understand the decision making? I understand. It's very cutthroat. Yeah. I mean, I understand it. I mean, that's exactly the word I was thinking. I was like, this was such a difficult call, I'm sure, for them to, you know, Mm -hmm. you're either putting the 239 people uh, at risk or you're putting countries at risk risk with more people. I'm sure it's just they're trying to weigh that decision. But I think ultimately, as we know, the more time that goes by, I mean, the less you're going to, less likely you are to to probably figure out what is going on. So, but I guess in this case, Mm -hmm. it probably was the right call since I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what they could have uncovered in those 48 hours, but. I don't know that there could have been any survivors. I mean, for a plane of that size to hit water, when a plane that heavy and is one that's going that fast hits water from everything I read in my research, it's like a plane hitting concrete. Yeah. Like the impact is that, that severe. So I think that the the decision was mostly made out of safety, but I think it, it was also made knowing that the only thing that would be discovered in this case ever would probably be remains, if if that. Got it. Like debris. So they actually do this twice, which is really frustrating. But you can imagine like how this went over with families eventually, because what they had said, like once they disclosed that we had the public information, that we saw them fake right and then go left, they actually said they had eyes on the plane until 1.30 a.m. This was false. They actually had it on their radar all the way until 3 a.m. And they saw a pivot direction once it was going like west to Malaysia. It did another pivot. It actually turned again and went up towards the Indian Ocean. So they also were delayed in disclosing that. So this was like spelling out a huge like blanket of mistrust and confusion for the public. And really like the international military efforts on this because they're tapping their resources to help in this endeavor. And they're kind of feeling bewildered that an entire government is just sending people on a wild goose chase when they know that you're never going to find anything over there. 
Like, why were they wasting everyone's time with the misinformation was the big question everyone was asking. So then there's secrecy and there's delays and they have now pushed the search all the way to day four and the families were just in agony and disbelief Mm -hmm. as to how this was handled and what had really happened. And they felt the whole thing was being treated like it was a big secret. Now, eventually, the government releases a statement on this and they explain their reasoning. They talk about how they had internal concerns about disclosing how advanced the radar tech had become. Um, But we've already kind of talked about that. So once this information is out, the Malaysian government had the Indian Ocean on their search territory and they said, "Okay, this is the place, the last place that we actually know they were going. They end up begging the Australian government to help, which the Australian government agrees to. And they searched the most hostile waters of any ocean for that plane for missing flight 370. And Australian officials um, made public their challenges of this search and said that it was truly testing, this is a quote, but I'm paraphrasing it, testing the human capacity of engineering excellence as those waters were impossible to look through. Mm. They were volatile. They were deep. They were filled with underwater trenches. And it was just an extreme hunt, at this point, not even to find survivors because it was unlikely. Um, They were just trying to get through the waters to actually find the debris. As if whoever brought the plane down is what they were thinking, probably knew that if this was the location they were going to crash the plane, these would be the most impossible waters to find them. (laughs) It almost felt deliberate. Does that kind of, does that resonate at all? Or does that feel like a stretch? No, I mean, it definitely resonates. If, um, if we're still going with the idea that this was, you know, a deliberate thing, um, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And so it's just, yeah, I mean, that is just really, really dark because then you're, you know, also making sure that the loved ones don't ever really get closure. And that's just disgusting. Yeah, never. Yeah, that I think that's the thought. That's what they were thinking. They're like, the, if the pilot was the one who crashed this plane, he knew that this was going to be impossible to retrieve. But it's actually around this time they conclude the above water search. This gets really interesting because they decide to send out um, a submersible as part of a search project and a search mission for this plane that's going to go underwater. And I believe it was a I don't think it was controlled. um by someone inside of it. I think it was robotic and it was basically set to cover 3 million square miles of search territory underwater looking for plane or debris. And 3 million square miles, just for like reference for anybody who has a hard time visualizing that, that is roughly the size of the U.S. <laughs> That's the size of the country. Um, it continued this for months and months and months um, until actually over a year would pass of this thing underwater in this area looking for the plane And the government could no longer afford the cost of it because it was tens of millions of dollars for this project. It produced thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, actually, of images underwater. Never once was Flight 370 or any piece of it found in that water. So in a quote from officials, and this one really freaked me out and kind of what you were saying before about like how open space terrifies you. He was like trying to give an answer. You know, the public was upset. Like, how come you haven't found anything? And he said, you have to understand that the ocean is as close to nothing as any of us can get. Mm-hmm. It's so sinister. <sighs> That's sinister as hell. No, oh, definitely sinister. I mean, it just reminds you of how <laughs> small and like helpless, you know, in situations like this, I'm sure those loved ones felt. And that's just so 
so upsetting. And um, but the, what I will say is that mm-hmm. you explaining that I am so amazed and like baffled by technology. <laughs> like the fact that we have something that can cover that much ground within a year and be able to tap yeah. for things is pretty, pretty amazing. Not to take us to a point of like a joke, but I was thinking about tour. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, we covered the span of the U.S. in less than a year. <laughs> I had to break a little bit of tension. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that technology in our truck was nothing near. Oh my lord! No, no, no. no. We might as well have been. We were traveling by bobsled. I don't know what we were doing. One hundred percent. Now. I wanted to say, like, at this point in the research, it sounds like all hope of finding the flight was lost for over a year because Malaysian government's like, we cannot afford the effort until, until a discovery was made. And this is where we're going we're gonna to get into some real conspiracy around this. So on the French commune of St. Andre Reunion, there was debris that was discovered by a group of beach cleaners. There was a large particle of plain debris, metal that contained a serial number. So fearful of what they found, police were contacted and investigators flew to the site where that serial number was connected back to Flight 370. This was a piece of the plane. So an immediate search of the area followed, which would eventually turn up close to, I think, 20 separate pieces of debris, both from the plane as well as personal belongings from passengers, such as suitcases, allegedly water bottles, etc., But outside of these items, and not all of them have been confirmed of this plane. I think officially there have only been like three pieces that they said are absolutely from this plane. Um, But outside of all of these, the plane itself was not located. But this gave us the closest zone of where we think the plane might have went down. And it uncovered some very disturbing witness statements from people who were sailing near these waters on the morning the plane went down, apparently. So I found two separate witness accounts um in my reporting and i believe they're both considered very credible they were separate of each other and they were in the indian ocean on this morning one was from a woman and she was sailing and the other was from a fisherman who was also out there sailing and both claimed to see an aircraft soaring through the sky early that morning that looked like it was on fire so We're unsure what story that tells us, but it sounds like an extreme mechanical failure or possibly a deliberate scorching of the aircraft from inside the plane. These sightings would have been very close to the suspected timing of when we believe the plane went down. Any thoughts on that before I jump into some additional details? Um, I see wheel spinner. (laughs) You know, it's, as we're talking through all this, I keep coming back to um, if we're going, you know, if I'm thinking about the pilot, I'm still kind of mm-hmm. in that zone right now, thinking about like wh- where he was mentally when all this was going down. Um, the thought, it, it, it just keeps coming back to me, though, that he's a father and a family man and i'm yeah Yeah. and i'm just kind of like it it is in moments like this where we're talking about them looking up and seeing a plane that looks like it's on fire that i have Mm -hmm. a little bit of like hope in my stomach that it wasn't that because i want i i just it's hard for me to believe that somebody that's you know carried a family through the world would go to Mm -hmm. the lengths of doing something 
awful and then like blowing up a yeah. plane. Like I a, mean, like that, a true suicide. Yeah. Mission. Yeah. That just sounds so unbelievable. I mean, it could have been a thing, but um, and also we don't know if this was actually the plane, but um, if we're going with that, we don't. It's yeah, it's just a compelling couple of witness statements. It's interesting. I mean, how many planes could have been flying over this and for two separate people to see a plane in the sky uh, on fire seems very compelling to me because it's like how many other things could that have been (laughs) but i agree with you i don't know do you think it's possible that it was like a really serious mechanical issue all of the you know trans transmissions and like communication devices went out and he just kept the plane up in the air for like seven hours straight just trying to like figure out a plan like we've got no way to contact any air force to like land the plane and then maybe try to do a water landing eventually maybe or if it was you know the craziest thing is is if it was dark like and he and let's say let's let's say that everything went out and he was trying to just find a way to get back to something that would mm-hmm. kind of explain why you would fly the additional 7 hours to wait until the sun came up and you're trying to find and you're flying towards I guess I'm trying to think about this if you're flying back towards France it's like when is the sun gonna rise like would it be you you think I know (laughs) (laughs) you think I have the information (laughs) listen last time you asked me to to tell you what D.B. Cooper's (laughs) entire plan was (laughs) listening back to that when you said you said something like you were like well i don't know <laughs> like you're like you're asking me <laughs> i was just asking you to step in for the fbi why is that such an ass well i don't know what i'm asking you to step in for i don't know what the, i'm asking you no to i the, like where you're going with that, ma- your that makes sense to me and tell me when the sun is yeah. supposed to rise well how, i mean how many okay so if it was a mechanical failure maybe it's possible to even think that the entire like maybe the electricity was out on the plane. Like he has nothing in the cockpit that's giving him any sense of direction. That's, oh my God, that's so scary. Because then not only is the sky pitch black, the entire, in. oh my God, that's so scary. The entire inside of a plane is pitch black, yeah. including the cockpit. You're flying in a dark room. But it would kind of explain why he would keep it up in the air so long because he's hoping that if it's one in the morning when that, all that goes down, and he keeps that thing going and he's just praying that he's got enough gas to keep it and try to. Mm-hmm. I'll, fi- with, like I'll find sunlight yeah, somewhere. Yeah, like with his experience, yeah. maybe he had a sense of direction that was just like out of this world, knew it pretty well to which direction to go to get back towards land of some sort. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I can I can see a scenario like that. The only thing that disrupts it is that the likelihood, again, mm-hmm. of the of like the mechanical failure across the entirety of the plane is virtually impossible. Yeah. So it could have been a scenario where maybe it wasn't even him who was doing it, but it was a hijacking situation. And then suddenly like the hijacker was subdued on the plane, but they're, you know, out of luck because they have Mm -hmm. no communication and no power. So now they're stuck in a situation of like, okay, mission is to keep the plane up in the air and stable for as long as possible. I just don't know how, Because then in that scenario, we're assuming like, okay, all of the mechanical issues were actually deliberate from a hijacker. So it's not that the plane was malfunctioning. So how do we explain people seeing the plane on fire in the sky? You know? Well, I wonder if it just like 
could it have been a gas thing? Like the fuel thing, it just exploded. Like at a certain point, I mean, that could be something. I mean, any number of things could have, yeah, any number of things could have really happened, but it's just, that was a strange detail. But I actually think there's a theory here that you're going to find very, very interesting about cyber hijacking, Mm. which is such a scary concept. And apparently it's very possible. So let's just discuss... Let's see some of the eerie things that we learn after the fact during the investigation that involved the captain and any communication attempts from passengers and whatnot. Like I said, um, anything that went down in flight 370. So I'm going to first discuss some of the debris that was found and the conspiracy around that. So there is a lot of public um, mistrust, let's say, in the debris that was located, of which there were 20 pieces. Only three have been officially confirmed. There was a collection of what is believed to have been verified debris of this flight located in the Indian Ocean, but some believe that given the pressure on the Malaysian government to find something after a year of searching and the end of the ongoing, or to try to end the ongoing costs of this search, which amassed more than $155 million at this point, they planted several fabricated pieces of plane debris and onboard evidence to appease the public and those who were searching and try to give closure to the case. Now, this was just a claim. There was no reason um, for anyone to believe this theory until there was some, there were a few third-party people who chimed in um, that could kind of back this up. So back in 2012, this airplane, the specific aircraft, actually had an accident at an airport that was very benign, um, but it was like an on, on the runway collision with another plane. This affected the right wing of this plane and caused a substantial amount of damage. Now, that damage was eventually repaired with completely new parts and replacements provided by Boeing, and ultimately the entire right wing was replaced. But coincidentally, the debris that was found during the search, what they found in near like that French island, was just from the right wing of the plane. The right wing, which was completely replaced by Boeing just years prior, and those broken parts had been archived somewhere else in locations known as plain boneyards. So it's believed that the debris, which they think was planted in the Indian Ocean, um, were the archived broken parts from the right wing in 2012, that somehow the Malaysian government created an orchestrated event where they were able to search where it was, get those parts, and then they were able to fabricate them to put them in the ocean. Right now, it seems very far fetched, (laughs) but what really drove this theory of the planted debris were that these pieces of the plane seem to have barnacles on them on every side. Barnacles can only develop on surfaces that are completely submerged in water all of the time, or at least 90% of the time. However, these pieces were tested in water flotation tanks by the like the party that found them, like the body that found them. They all float making it almost entirely impossible that barnacles could have formed on every side of this debris unless it was a deliberate effort that took a year of the Malaysian government retrieving those like boneyard pieces, submerging them to make it look like they'd suffered the weathering of a year lost at sea and then planting them. But it actually gets even stranger. Tests on the barnacles could actually determine the temperature of the waters that they grew in. And those waters seem to be colder than the waters that were surrounding this part of the Indian Ocean where the debris was found, which would suggest that the barnacles were developed in different waters. How does that make sense? It also would take a pretty 
evil, like, government, you know, high, whoever came up with this thing to start doing that a year ago, essentially, <laughs> to have started the fabrication well, process yeah. of uh, shrapnel. The parts. Yeah, yeah, a year ago. Like, that would be so sinister. I want to believe that that's not true, but I know that governments, I actually don't know much about the Malaysian government and, like, kind of if it's... Mm -hmm how its people feel about it. But um, that, I mean, listen, we know that governments all around the world do things that they're not supposed to do to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, I sound like a real Facebook. <laughs> no, you sound very rational. I sound like a Facebook, like a Facebook. <laughs> no. I, well, I mean, we could talk about some of the potential motives of why the Malaysian government would fabricate this. Obviously one of the easiest tells um, was their response to the discovery. So since multiple pieces were collected at different points and by different governments, because they were not found near Malaysia, search parties that were there, of course, were like, well, we need to, you know, collect these and test them in different ways. The Malaysian government was abnormally quick to rule that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this debris was 100% connected to Flight 370. Whereas the debris that the French government collected they were the ones who deployed those tests that I mentioned earlier, and they noted all the discrepancies, and they're like, well... This does not really make sense that this is connected back to Flight 370, but the serial number does match, which we can only connect back to the accident a year prior where the right wing was removed and replaced. It just sat in direct contrast. I mean, this led to a wider conversation about mistrust and growing suspicion that the Malaysian government was just becoming very, very desperate because to, I know it's been like years, but to look back, the international pressure they had on them to figure out what happened to this plane and like all the money they had invested for them to come back with nothing for them to come back with nothing, I think would have been extreme and would have, would have been met with a lot of resistance. So it didn't seem off the table to think they had been involved in some kind of a shady scheme to basically plant evidence that they had fabricated with weathering and these barnacles in a part of the ocean that was kind of roughly where they think the plane went down. I can see a motive there for sure. Yeah. Well, I think, it, I, I mean, I'm purely going off of my memory, which I hope this is correct. But I think the other mm -hmm. thing that they were kind of messing up is that you have to be transparent. Like if you're not finding stuff and you're doing everything possible, say that, like, like tell the families mm -hmm. that, like be transparent. I think what I, if I remember correctly, the Malaysian government was very they kept their cards really close to their chest, which is just oh, yeah. like, I mean, from the get go, yeah. they, were, they were like concealing information about yeah. what they knew just from radar. So they had already planted the seed of mistrust. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this led to all these conversations where, you know, once this hit the news, this did hit international news. It became a scandal and actually evoked protests. So the exact opposite happened from what they were anticipating mm -hmm. and particularly protests from the families and loved ones of the victims of this flight. And one of the mothers of the victims actually spoke out against the government. And just to paraphrase a quote from what she said to reporters um, with questions asking about, you know, why are they trying to do this? She said, you know, they're trying to fool us. And is, is it because they don't want us to take the compensation money? Do they think that this is you know, just going to make us go away kind of thing. So at this point, the Malaysian government clearly already had intent by offering compensation money to kind of stop all efforts, get people to quiet down and try to push this behind them, you know, forget about the disaster of flight, you know, 370. 
it felt compelling to me. I, I felt like I could see a motive there. But yeah. I do have something else here that if this couldn't get any stranger, there were apparently six additional pieces of debris from the plane that were also located on the beaches of Madagascar. And the Malaysian government had orchestrated one of their officials to come and personally transport this debris. Um, this was a process that this person was very well versed in. And it was a person who had done something similar to this with retrieving debris for official government purposes many times. Now, for an unknown reason, while en route to obtain this debris from the Madagascar government, this official vehicle was hit with heavy artillery and this person was assassinated and never picked up those remaining pieces. And the reason behind that is not clear. No one really knows why, like for what motive, um, some like an, a government official picking up those additional pieces, why they would be taken out. But as far as we know, the Malaysian government has still never retrieved those additional six pieces of the plane. They are still in the possession of the Madagascar government. How does that feel? I, uh, it's, it's all hitting me now like a wave why this case is, like, is so heavy for me because I think they had, an op- they, they had an opportunity after such a big tragedy to have like a redemption hour and really mm-hmm. show people like how much they were going to step up to the plate and do everything and do it everything they can and be transparent about it. Like I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but like that sounds so just off. I mean, the coincidence of it would be, is compelling to me. Yeah. It's starting to tell a story, but I actually, I wanted to dip into this other thing that I touched on earlier, the idea of cyber hijacking, because when I went through this theory, I think this is the one that's going to sink for you. Um, because when we talk about cyber hijacking, how that's even possible, what would be the motive for that, this actually ties <laughs> the cyber hijacking plot back to the United States, which is really interesting. So I had a tough time trying to understand the theory initially because it's a commercial aircraft. So why would there be any other government that would want to take down a plane like this? And how could they even do it? So let's first talk about the why. The easiest tell in this theory is that the plane was being used to transport something um, which we're not fully clear of. There was unspecified cargo um, that was to go from Malaysia to China, and it was being transported um, on what would seem to be like a pretty inconspicuous aircraft, right? A commercial airliner, but one that's large enough to carry something like this. So people noticed, people who were reviewing this case, there were odd details in the cargo manifest that was released by the airline, which detailed this bizarre and heavy-weighted cargo of lithium batteries. It was weighing more than two cars. (laughs) Now, the Malaysian government, once this was pointed out, they came out against the airline because the airline was the one who released the cargo manifest. And the airline was like, no, 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 that's not true and that's not correct. The airline is lying There were only about 200 pounds of lithium batteries, and the remaining weight was all radio accessories and chargers. But then when the government was probed, I'm like, well, what what does that mean? What are radio accessories and chargers? They had no official response. So it was just odd that they seemed to go out of their way to discredit the airline and what they were reporting the cargo was. And nobody's really entirely sure about what was being transported from Malaysia to China. Now, this bleeds into the theory of cyber hijacking, and I'll explain why I think this is terrifying. So let's first go back in time. Years, years, and years prior, Boeing had actually patented a state-of-the-art tech following 
where a plane could have an internal system built into like the the actual infrastructure of the plane, which could prevent onboard terrorist hijackings. In the event that a plane was overtaken by a terrorist, the system could be deployed to remove full control from the flight crew, and the plane could be remotely flown, rerouted, and landed on an autopilot feature without anyone on board having any control in that process. Now, this was never officially officially deployed in commercial aircrafts as far as anyone knows. It is not built into commercial planes, but the suspicion is that that's not entirely true. And there are many aircrafts with Boeing, specifically their larger planes, which have this capability. And it's only known to officials. This is not public information. So the theory is that whatever secret cargo was being stowed on Flight 370, the U.S. government sought to intercept the trip and remotely hijack the flight using the Boeing system, which could explain some of the strange patterns of like veering to the right and then the extreme sharp left, all of the systems going off radar, communication failing, the pilots didn't see it coming, they didn't see any like mechanical error that would happen. Now, the last place that we know the plane was headed was towards the Indian Ocean, where the U.S. conveniently does have a base with a landing strip on the island of Diego Garcia. How is this conspiracy hitting so far? How are you feeling? I, <laughs> Before I feel going like I'm further. taking a 180. I'm taking a sharp, sharp left. Um, <laughs> You're taking your sharp left. I know. I know. Um, it is very compelling. I'm like on the edge of my seat. I mean, that is... The, the only the only thing for me is I'm thinking like I find it a little hard to believe that they would just kind of if this they had never done this on a commercial flight before that they were like, yeah, let's do it on this one with 239 people on board. But I guess if the cargo that they were transporting Depends was serious cargo. enough yeah. that they would maybe try it. I don't know. Well, the theory is that they didn't actually crash the plane. Is, is what some people think. So what they're saying is following the plane la- being autopilot landed on this um, airstrip on the island of Diego Garcia, which is a protected military base for the U.S. Nobody can travel there unless you have clearance. The secret cargo of the plane itself was confiscated, as was the plane, um, which was then dismantled and hidden on the island. And the passengers were either imprisoned or killed by the U.S. government. And this is all alleged. I'm not pushing any theory. I'm just saying. <laughs> but it was a part of a mission that involved the public as collateral to eventually um, just basically hide what they did. And then they were the ones who orchestrated the planting of the debris on that French island. And they told this, it told the story of a tragic plane crash. Now, some of this... Um, is supported, I will say, by alleged eyewitness testimony from two journalists. There is Farah Ahmed and Amend. Uh, I definitely did a typo on this name. So I'll just say Amend, and there is another last name to this person, but I don't want to mispronounce their last name. They spoke with witnesses on a neighboring island um, near the island of Diego Garcia, and they learned of some pretty damning stories here. According to witnesses on this neighboring island, which is just about 700 miles south of the island of Diego Garcia, they claimed that they saw a white large aircraft with red stripes, just like this plane, fly past the island on the morning of March 8th. The plane was extremely low, which could indicate it was lowering to land either by its own plan or it was experiencing a mechanical failure and knew that the island of Diego Garcia was the nearest location with an airstrip. But the plane 
or uplane with communication failures headed towards a U.S. military base, which the base cannot identify, would be shot down. So that kind of spells two different conspiracies here. There's one where the U.S. cyber hijacks the plane to land it and retrieve the cargo. There's another one where it's a mechanical failure and the plane is panicking because it doesn't know where it's going, but eventually knows it's going to be headed in the direction of this airstrip, even though it's at a military base. But because the U.S. military can't communicate with the plane and say, you know, state your intentions, who are you? It just shoots down the plane. So if the military did that, that would be a story they'd probably want to cover up. The U.S. does not want to be responsible for accidentally shooting down a plane with 239 people on board. Exactly. That was going to be my one question. It's like, so if they had saved the day and gotten all these people off safely, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't we know about that? So the second version, like you're saying, where they kind of accidentally shot it down because they figured... Is that what you're saying? They like accidentally shot it down because they figured it was some. Yeah, wasn't a it could go flight. either way. We're like, yeah, the U.S. was cyber hijacking and they're like, we have to land it to get the cargo or the cargo thing is not significant at all. And the plane was just having a malfunction and was trying to land. And the U.S. was like, this is a threat. Shoot it down. And then realized that they had taken innocent people's lives. Both seem plausible. I can definitely see a scenario. The cyber hijacking is possibly a bit far-fetched, but it also would really explain how all of those communication systems went out. And you're doing this to me That's right so after scary. July 4th. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'm like, you trying to feel patriotic. I'm huh? like, I'm patriotic. And then I'm hearing this. Um, oh, Do you know a year ago when we did, I think our second episode, it was on the 4th of July and we started the episode and we said, happy 4th of July. And you said, well, happy 4th, baby. <laughs> Happy 4th. <laughs> Happy 4th. I listened to it the other day. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. I feel like I remember having like, wait, this is so weird. <laughs> so you're going to have to what? tell me if my memory serves me correct. If you, how Did you listen recently? Um, They're all fresh in my memory. Okay. Because I swear to God, if I'm thinking of that episode and where I was, I had a big gulp. I think you did. Is a big gulp from Wawa? Oh, damn it. You're right. It was a Wawa. I was going to say, I literally just ran out and got a big gulp before we started this <laughs> No, you episode. had a Wawa. I remember you said, I've got it my Wawa. Wawa. Damn it. Okay. It was Wawa, baby. Well, same energy. Close enough. Same energy. I mean, maybe on the 4th, you did have your, your, your <laughs> No, Wawa it was a Wawa. Moments. You're right. <laughs> well, there is another angle here that I, I have to tell you about because this might throw a huge wrench in everything for you. There is an additional detail that was overlooked and then it came to light for everybody. I mentioned earlier, or maybe I didn't mention this earlier, there's a mystery passenger who was on the plane. So only 227 passenger tickets were sold, but there was a 228th ticket that was scanned and we have no record of who this was and why they were on this flight. So could it have been that they were there to accompany the cargo if this was the cyber hijacking scenario and then the U.S. mission unfolded to intercept the plane via cyber hijacking and the U.S. was able to do whatever they were going to do or the U.S. had intentions to reroute the plane and land it and then confiscate the cargo and arrest everybody. But the person who was on board made it a suicide mission because they could not allow the cargo to get into the possession of the U.S., 
and they were the ones who were internally tampering with all of the communication devices so that the plane could not be tracked or maybe they could try to dismantle how the U.S. was flying this plane. That's possible. How the heck does somebody board a plane without ID? Unless, well, the officially, I think what the government eventually says, they're like, no, this is a, this was a misprint. Like, that's not true, which could very well be, could very well be true. But according to the system, it shows a 228th ticket was scanned to get onto the plane. The only scenario where I can think that would be someone who would stay anonymous would be somebody who was a government official Mm -hmm. and their sole job was to accompany the cargo from Malaysia to China. In this theory, it's believed that the 228th passenger unbuckled themselves at 39 minutes into the flight and made their way to the cockpit and either forced the captain to remove the circuit breaker above him or he did it himself and it would have wiped out all communication with any control center and then it would help to um, basically tamper with any radar detection. So it could have been there's the scenario where they were there to accompany the cargo or this was a military mission from the U.S. so that it was a U.S. official who had boarded the plane somehow if they were able to secure documentation or a ticket to do so. And it was a suicide mission to make sure the cargo was going to get into the ocean, that the plane was going to go down. It would never reach China. I don't know. I mean, like I said, this is just a theory because they've tried to dispel the 228th passenger, but the thought of a mystery passenger really freaked me out when looking at this case. I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, I was really hoping you were going to say, well, it's just a theory. Like, there's no proof. But I mean, if the ticket was scanned, that's so weird. When do you ever hear of that happening on commercial flights that somebody can just walk on? I mean, I was thinking, I'm like, if it was an air marshal, maybe I don't. I really don't know how that works. To be honest, we should have <laughs> we should have invited somebody on who's like an airport official. <laughs> it's it's just weird to me because it's like, wouldn't you want <sighs> even if it's a government official, like, wouldn't mm-hmm. or maybe not? Wouldn't they want their ID to be known to at least the government? And I guess the government could be protecting that ID. It's possible. Just so that their families like know that they're on that plane or something. No idea. I mean, that's a very risky like territory to be working in. So I'm sure that's somebody who's willing to cut their losses if needed for the sake of the mission. I don't know. The only the last thing that I would talk about in terms of like theories and strange you know thoughts about this is whether you think it was a hijacking or a mechanical issue. This still does not completely dispel the theory that this could have been an orchestrated and deliberate suicide from the pilot himself. And although, you know, we have those reports of the odd and withdrawn behavior prior to the flight, and we have that really eerie deleted metadata um, from the previous flights on his at-home simulator, it is not suspected, actually, by those who've investigated the case that he did this intentionally. They do not believe that the deleted logs of the flights show anything damning Um, But we have no way to know for sure. If he did take the plane and he did plan to crash it, it was probably an ordeal that involved him cutting communication intentionally after he signed off from Malaysia. Um, And he did so so he could ensure almost zero signals or systems could manually find their way to where this plane was and track it down. 
and it's possible he was either holding the co-captain hostage or he had incapacitated him. The question is, what happened in the following seven hours where he was just flying in the sky, possibly contemplating, am I going to do this? Is there still a way out? Am I going to do this? All while we've got passengers in the cabin who just know something impending is coming. It's There are... Sorry. No, my gosh. No, go, I was going to go through go, my conclusion. Go. If you... <laughs> well, I was just going to say there are just so many conflicting points of evidence and motive and witness statements because I've gone through like four or five different witness statements, two of which on each side spell completely different theories from each other, but both are considered credible on each side. So in large part, I think that's just what makes the case so fascinating to talk through is that there are so many strange and very possible scenarios of what could have happened here. But I just want to ask you... Is there anything you personally feel that feels the most logical based on everything I've gone through in this case? I really don't want to believe that it would have been a mental health crisis for a pilot. I really don't want to believe, but that's Mm -hmm. it still feels like the most likely thing in my mind. And it's weird because as what what I was just going to say is that I know sometimes when people, uh, you know, are going to go through with like a suicide, they sometimes have the second thought where they don't want to follow through with it anymore. And I wondered Mm. as we were talking about it, like, did he shut everything off? And then all of a sudden was like, what the heck am I doing? And like came out of an episode and tried to get it back. Like that also was running through my mind. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. No, I'm just, I'm, as you're describing it, I'm like going through the scenario in my mind of like, because it's the equivalent of like standing on the ledge, you mm-hmm. know, because people rarely just decide they want to commit suicide and then just jump. It's a, it's a waiting game. Yeah. And a wrestling in their mind. I actually just read something very interesting recently um, about suicide. This is not necessarily related, but it has always been viewed as solely like a psychological issue. Um, there was a teenager who actually just won the first uh, position prize for this discovery. She did like an evaluation of subjects um, looking at brain matter of a collection of people who had committed suicide and found there's actually like a physiological protein or there's something in their body that actually changed their brain chemistry. So it was never just a psychological thing. Mm -hmm. It was quite literally a difference of like a chemical protein. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But to get back to your point of what you were saying, um, I can definitely, definitely see a scenario like that where the second you turn off, you cut all communication like that, there's really a weird impasse that you're at where there's no going back because you're going to lose your pilot's license. You're going to go to jail for endangerment. Like your whole life is going to be completely and utterly ruined for what you just did. But on the other end of things, the only escape now is to follow through with what you imagined, which is to plunge the plane into the water knowing that you have an entire cabin of people on board. And I mean, some of the stories I was reading about the people on board, there were like honeymoon couples. There was an entire group of calligraphy artists. They had like gone to like an exhibition or something. Very strange. Wow. Um, Yeah, just like it was just a random collection of um, very innocent people who just boarded that plane that night and never once even thought that that would be their last time touching ground, you know? 
Yeah. I don't want to believe it either, but there is something that feels very deliberate. I don't think I can believe that this was solely a mechanical issue that was out of everyone's control. And then it was just a tragic end. Yes. And I'll tell you why I also have that sinking feeling is that he had so much experience. He was so like he was practicing all the time. He was 56 Mm -hmm. or 57 years old, had had a full career. And I find it like it's a little hard for me to walk through a scenario where the first thing didn't go off and he wasn't immediately like boom, 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 knowing how to try to get something under control. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, Or, I mean, it's not entirely implausible to me that it was – I don't, I, the hi, cyber hijacking is super interesting. Like, I think that that could terrify. I mean, that oh my is really God. so. They don't. They that is totally a theory. Like, we don't know if this technology exists with Boeing, or we do know it exists. No, that that tech really exists. Boeing okay. patented this. This is all the way back in two thousand one after nine eleven. They developed this, but the problem was for scenarios like this, they were like, we need to know that if something like this is in place, that there's no possibility that a foreign country could actually interfere and cyber hijack a plane without even having a terrorist on board mm. because of the U S theoretically could like jump in and hijack um, a plane like that. So could any country if it had the right tech and it had the right way to infiltrate. So as far as we know, this has never been placed on any commercial aircraft, but it's very possible. That's not the truth. And there's good reason that everyone is, kept in the dark about that right oh my god i feel like so such scary. a small person <laughs> listening to this case i know, I know. sometimes i, I so go like, through the government things yeah, and i'm like, like i don't know anything i'm a common person <laughs> i know baby i'm living in dc and i'm like <laughs> constantly reminded oh man i mean what do you think like, what, my biggest what? contemplation is like getting to trader joe's at the end of the week like, i can't even <laughs> fathom the idea of cyber hijack i know or like cyber tired. warfare for that matter like if two countries can do it at the same <sighs> time i'll tell you what would really like dismantle an entire country the internet getting cut out oh that gosh. would be crazy people would go crazy oh my god like it would shut down everything everything would be shut down no money like <laughs> everything would just be so crazy while we're like oh. being facebook conspiracy theorists it, <laughs> I know. this is like the furthest we're going I down know, the rabbit hole guys but while we're there it's like i mean it's it's insane to me to remember that we've had hacking happen you know very recently and that that yeah. is all happening all the time like there's so much about that that the, that you and i don't know and it's just I think that that feeling is why this case is so intense for people is because it is a reminder that like at the end of the day, you want to you want to trust your government. And you want to trust that the people that work for it are out there to protect you and uh, that the common man is the one that's like really why all these things are in places. All, all these policies are in place. And it's just. Mm-hmm. It's like a very daunting feeling when you remember that there's a lot that's happening behind the scenes that we all don't know about. 
so much that we don't know about. The thought of the idea of like a secret mission of like secret cargo that couldn't go to China and the U.S. intercepts like it's yeah, it's things like that where it's so, so far away and over our heads. It's terrifying. I really don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. I'm very sure in my conviction that I do not believe, like I said, that this was just a cut and dry mechanical issue and everyone in this case is innocent. And it's odd to me that to this day, the body of that plane has never been found mm-hmm. ever. I really don't know how I feel about that, but that is why this is the mystery of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Any final thoughts, Miss Stu? I just got to say, you nailed the research on that one. That was really wow. Oh, please stop. That <laughs> no, was a I'm just lot saying, I'm not trying oh, to like, <laughs> I'm not sugarcoating. I mean, like, that was, I'm. That's going to sit with me. I mean, you know, they always sit with me, but that was like, (laughs) I felt like I really had way more context about it uh, than I had before. And like, I feel like I could actually speak about it. uh, Well, I feel like I learned something while researching this, to be honest. I I feel so much more educated about just all the different ways that planes can be tracked and like all of the safety measures and protocols about like, okay, if this system goes down, we've got system two and system three and system four. Like that's wild that there are so many things that can protect people mm-hmm. well now you know not to pick me as a co-pilot though because <laughs> i'm gonna out I can't believe you. you said that i was like Stu, you could literally jeopardize someone's is that really license. a thing this person is not a commercial i pilot. would assume this is just like a for fun so, thing let's look it up in real time so oh, i can just my know god <laughs> is it Legal to let a non-pilot. If any of you all are pilots, let us know in the comments <laughs> so I can cover I'm my ass to, accordingly. With my mouth open. <laughs> Unlike driving cars, um, the PIC—I don't know what that is—may um, allow anyone, including a non-pilot. Oh, okay. Um, a pilot who may not wait, who may not legally act as a pilot in command or any other fully qualified pilot, fly the airplane or be the sole manipulator. This was such a confusing sentence. So it says, <laughs> may allow. Yes, they can do that. I don't know why that is a circumstance where they can do that. You can fly certain planes without a pilot's license. Okay. So it seems like it's probably, it's low stakes. It's the air. What could happen up there? I mean, with me as a co-pilot, a hell of a lot. Because as we were doing it, now that I know I'm in the clear, as he said to me, go ahead and, uh, well, he he's kind of like didn't even tell me I was flying it at first. And I, and mm. after he told me I was, I mean, he was helping me. Also dangerous. Also dangerous. <laughs> but he was in full control, but kind of like, it's almost like when you're right. driving one of those um, like driver's ed cars and the teacher has the That's wheel. That's what I was imagining, yeah. Pretty much like, I mean, not like that, but like way more sophisticated. But as I started to like learn how to do it more, I mean, I was like basically about to nosedive us. Like, <laughs> I was like, Please don't oh let me do this. <laughs> it's crazy that it was um, it was like that sensitive that the second you felt like you were in control, suddenly it was going out of control. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like the those little tiny planes. I mean, this is like a little propeller plane. Like this, they're so sensitive mm-hmm. to, you know, the slightest little bit of. I, I imagine they're probably change. even harder, actually, to fly yeah. a commercial aircraft or like a large aircraft, one that has autopilot, obviously, but. It's fine. I don't know if you saw this on Reels or not, but there was a trend on TikTok of girls asking their straight boyfriends because there's a theory going around <laughs> that all straight men believe, no matter their level of knowledge, that if they were put in the position, 
they could land a plane. And like these girls ask their boyfriends, they're like, do you think you could land an airplane, like a commercial airplane? And they're like, I mean, am I the last resort? And she's like, yeah, like both pilots are out and like air traffic control has said you have to land the plane. He's like, and they're always like, yeah, I'm like 75% (laughs) sure I could do it. Like like not even a second of doubt. And that confidence. And that, my friends, is straight male confidence at its finest. (laughs) Oh, I wouldn't trust him. But anywho, thank you guys so, so much for sitting through this heap of research. This was a very, very lengthy case. I'm amazed that I got through as much as I did because I was like, I'm going to tap out at a certain point. But that is it. That is the missing flight 370 of Malaysian Airlines. One of the greatest mysteries since 2014. And now you got to go solve the other greatest mystery, which is where did the car go <laughs> that was <laughs> delivered to your <laughs> address? Where the hell is that thing? Oh, my God. I was just wondering. I was like, was that even included in the episode? It was. It yeah, was. My missing yeah. package. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go find that. I'm going to have to knock on some doors and shake some people down. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the last thing I Don't wanted you to have to do. I think it'll be fine. If anything, it'll be a story I can tell next week. And Creepers, we will catch you on next week's episode on Friday. For now, Sue and I will say goodbye. Bye, Creepers. Fare thee well. (laughs) 